The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. He prays, I'm about to pray in just a moment, he prays, God, send out your light and your truth that they would draw me to your altar, to your sanctuary, because when that happens, I would go to God, my exceeding joy. I pray that that would happen this morning. That we wouldn't get lost in the technical things. wouldn't get lost in some of the questions of this passage. But that through it all, He would send out His light and His truth and draw us to Him who is your exceeding joy. We pray towards that end. God, my God, Would you send out your light and your truth this morning? I trust that you have in ways already through the worship singing. And now as we worship in the word, you send out truth to us that draws us to you. You are exceeding joy. And would you teach us about that? To make that grow up in our hearts, in my heart, in the heart of each of my brothers and sisters here, and in the heart of those here who don't know you. You speak to them as well. You are exceeding joy. Lord, open your scriptures to us and teach us this morning. Bring whatever message you have and make it clear to our hearts and prayer. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. Be exalted minds and hearts now. Amen. Work is a noble thing. God himself worked six days before finally resting on the seventh. And from the very beginning he made Adam and with him Eve to work in the garden before the fall into sin. Work is a good thing. It's good that we be about that. And yet, since the fall into sin, work has been twisted and marred in any number of different ways. As a basic, fundamental human institution, work involves people interacting with other people, working with other people. And now what that means is that it involves sinners involved with other sinners. Work is good. Work is necessary. Work is God-ordained. And now work is pretty messy. Thankfully, in passages like our passage this morning, God has told us some of how we are to conduct ourselves, some of what we should be thinking about, and some of the ways we should act if we are going to carry out our labor in a way that honors God and enables us to enjoy Him in the midst of it. This morning, we look at Ephesians chapter 6, the third of those common human relationships that we've been looking at over the last several weeks. Verses 5 to 9. 
And for a number of us, as soon as we open it up and read it, we ask, how is slavery a common human relationship? I mean, it used to be, which was itself a huge problem, but not so much anymore. What's the deal here? Fair enough, but that's a good question. In fact, reading passages like this often cause a number of questions to come up in the minds of those of us who live in the 21st century Western world. Though other parts of the world still do, to this day, experience slavery in some form or another, for us, it's a thing of the past, a dreadful, wicked thing of the past, to be sure. It's a thing of the past. So what are we to make of, of this here in our Bible this morning? Well, before I specifically get into these verses, I want to make a couple of, I think I actually need to make a couple of general, broad comments about the topic of slavery. First, let me observe that many of us look at this passage or passages like it through the lens of 18th and 19th century American slavery. Many of us do that because we are Americans, and that's the closest experience that we have to it. Of course, we didn't live during that time period, but we've read much about it. It is a, a definite thing in our culture. So that's just automatically the lens at which we look, through which we look at a passage like this. This is not the time to go into much detail about this. If you want to learn more about this or read some more things, please see me later. We can put you in touch with some resources. But let me make a couple of observations here about the differences between ancient slavery and the slavery that many of us are thinking about different in, in a number of different ways. A couple that I could give, for, for example, American slavery, different than ancient slavery, was tied to race. That wasn't the case before. There wasn't the same sense of racial oppression and separation and segregation. It is estimated that about a third of Italy and Greece was slaves for centuries. But you couldn't tell it by looking at people. You might be able to tell from their dress or what they were actually doing. But you couldn't tell it by looking at their skin. They looked just like you. And that's what made it different, that there wasn't the same racial element to it. Additionally, another thing that made it different was that there actually were real opportunities. Strange as that may sound. Opportunities for social advancement, for welfare, for health, and for education, employment. There were actually opportunities involved in slavery for some people. Now, this is not to say that cruelty and injustice did not exist. It did. And fundamentally, owning another human being is inhumane. So don't misunderstand. Slavery was clearly and still is clearly wrong. I'm not trying to argue against that, by no means. But I am trying to point out a few differences. There were actually real reasons that some people voluntarily enslaved themselves. Some people thought this through and thought, this is my best bet to go this route. There were differences. So if you're, if you're thinking as you approach this passage, 18th and 19th century American slavery, put a little caution in there. Might be some differences. If you want to find out more of those things, again, see me later. The second preliminary comment I have to make concerns how we're going to approach this passage. Given that it is here in our text, what do we do with it? Slaves and masters don't exist in that form here in 21st century Utah. What do we do? Well, we do the same thing that we do in a number of other passages. We work to find out what modern equivalents of this relationship would be 
We look for the principles in the text, and then we apply it to those modern equivalents. We do this frequently. Consider, for instance, what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter. He tells us to fear God and honor the king. Well, none of us say, well, we don't have kings anymore, so it doesn't apply to us. No, we understand that he's saying, fear God and honor human governmental authority over you. And so we translate that principle into fear God and honor the president, the governor, the mayor, the senators, those that are in governmental authority over us. We understand that. We translate it for our modern world. Same thing here. We don't have slaves and masters here. But Paul is addressing some kind of similar authority structure. God, through Paul, is still saying something to us. He's still saying something to you. So what is it? Well, I think that it's obvious that at the root of the slave-master relationship is the issue of work, labor. That's why slavery existed. So that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning with one caution. Slaves related to masters on a labor level, to be sure. It's clear. But there was another reason. There were other ways that they related. The slave's life was... He had a multitude of different things going on in his life, not just his work. And different than us, in our relationships with our employers, the slave, all of those things answered back eventually to the master. All those different areas of his life were accountable to one person. That man had a lot of power. That's not the same with our employers today. We do still answer back to people in all these different areas of life. You know, a master had the right to determine the course of of uh, a career, the type of education, where a person lived. He was the legal representation for the slave. He had the right to punish him. He had the right to sell him. He had the right legally under certain conditions to kill him. It's a lot of power. We eventually answer in most, if not all of those areas, to someone in our society, but it's all diversified. So it strikes me that as we're looking at this, as we're focusing on the labor relationship, which is the root of this, there are ways that we can take some of these principles and apply them, I think, to other areas for which the slave answered to the master. We're learning about submitting to an authority like a master over us. We could think, you know, there are people who make rules regarding our education. Teachers, principals, school boards, state boards of education... We have to answer to those authorities in our life. For the slave, he answered on that question to his master. There are people who determine where we live and what kind of homes we can build, zoning commissions, safety boards, things like that. We have to answer to those authorities. So understand what I'm saying here. We're going to focus on the main, the main reason here that slavery existed, the labor question. But I think it can be a little more broadly applied might help some of us who aren't currently employed or, or maybe never have been employed to think about it in some of those regards. How do I submit to some of these other authorities in my life? Those are my preliminary comments regarding slavery. Again, if you want to talk more about that, come see me afterwards. Now I'm going to turn us towards the text itself. These five verses are the conclusion to the section that began at chapter 5. Verse 15, with wise walking. Remember that. How do you walk in a way that is worthy of the calling you've received? Well, Paul kind of focuses all that down into the walk of wisdom. Walk this path of wisdom, and how do you do that? 
verse 18, by being continually Spirit-filled. When one is filled with the Spirit, when the Spirit is at work in you, what He's doing is He's taking the Word of Christ and He's causing it to dwell down inside of you so as to change you on the inside. And verses 19 and 20 and 21 happen. Worship. Worship in the community and from the community to the Lord. And thanksgiving for all things at all times. And verse 21, submission. Some to some, as is appropriate. That verse then, verse 21, the submission there is the lead-in to those three common relationships we've been looking at. It leads us to our passage this morning, chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. And the main point, here's the main point of our passage here this morning. Christ redeems our labor relationships by turning our focus to Him. Christ aims to redeem our labor relationships, our relationships at work, whether we be the superior or the subordinate. He aims to redeem that relationship by turning our focus to Him. As has been the pattern, this is going to break down in half. First, He's going to speak to the slaves, or I'm going to use the word subordinate to translate it to our modern culture. He's going to speak to the subordinate for most of the passage. And then at the end, briefly, he's going to have a word of the superiors. So that's how we're going to approach it. Most of our time is going to be focused on the subordinate. And then a little bit for the superior at the end. Where we're going, let me first read the passage. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God in the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, whatever good, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. First half of the passage addresses those who are, be, who are to be submissive in this relationship, the slaves or the subordinates. And what is said to them what is said to each of us when we find ourselves in a work environment in which we are submitted to someone who is over us. What is said to us here, whether it's a boss or a manager or an owner, it's pretty straightforward. I don't think it's that complicated. Here's the summary. Subordinates, obey your superiors. Pretty straightforward. When you're in the role or the function, not in value or worth, when you are in the role or function of being submitted to someone, you are to respond to that superior, whoever it is, with an attitude of sincere, wholehearted obedience. Pretty clear. Let's see how he develops it in verses 5 to 8. You can ask those same questions that I've asked in previous passages. The what, the why, and the how. What exactly is he saying? Why should we live like this, and how can we do it? 
How can we find the internal heart motivation to do this? No slave ever thought this was easy. And subordinates the world over would agree with them. It's, it is hard. It is not in us naturally to submit to any superior. How can that happen? How can we do that? So we're going to end up. But first we're going to start with the what? What's being commanded? Verse 5. Slaves, subordinates, obey your earthly masters. There's the command. Remember how we defined the word obey last week when we were looking at verse 1. Pretty easy word. Listen to, respond to, follow, do what someone else tells you to do. That's the command. Obey your earthly masters. Now, it's been said before, we are not intended to set this command against other commands in the Bible. God does not intend that we would obey an earthly master who is then telling us to disobey God. It is assumed that we would not sin in this. So if your boss tells you to cook the books or to mislead a customer, you don't do that. Additionally, different than a slave and a master relationship, you may actually have opportunity. If you don't want to obey that boss, you may have opportunity to get a different job. To leave or to file a grievance or something. But setting those exceptions aside, where the boss is telling you to sin or where you decide, no, I just want to get a different job and leave. Setting those things aside, if you're in a work environment and there's no sinful command involved, God's expectation of you is clear. Obey. Obey the one that's over you. What does that look like? Well, we all know or have seen or have been a person who is essentially insubordinate. But just not quite enough to get fired. You know what that's like. Perhaps if you have children, children who are insubordinate, but not quite enough that you want to spank them. They're right up to the line, but not over it. Is that close enough? Does, does that qualify as the type of obedience that God is getting at here? Eventually, grudgingly, doing a, a pretty good portion of most of what's been expected? No, obviously not. He qualifies that by looking down to the next several verses. There are going to be several places where he elaborates on what this kind of obedience looks like. Again, it's not very hard to understand. Verse 5. It is obedience that is full of respect and authority. Obey with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Picture yourself approaching the Lord. It is inconceivable that you would come up to Him disrespectfully. That you would intend to deal with Him in a way that is just right up to the line, but not quite disobedient enough as to get in trouble. It's inconceivable that you would think Him incompetent or a fool, or would talk about Him behind His back when He's not physically present. We don't deal with the Lord like that. Instead, we look at Him in reverence with fear and trembling, with sincere hearts. Because He's God, actually, we worship Him. We don't come to Him with hidden agendas. We don't try to work the system. Obviously, that's not how we're supposed to approach the Lord. And in the same way, with that same attitude, that's how you are supposed to approach your earthly superiors. It's made clear there in verse 5, just as you would Christ in the same way. That sets the bar pretty high. In verse 6, it's not obedience to be submissive and cooperative only when he's watching. 
not. It's not by way of eye service. It's people-pleasing. Behavior that just intends to look good, but has no heart intention of actually being obedient and cooperative. In verse 7, true obedience leads to wholehearted, productive service. It is service rendered with a good will, says the verse. Those are the quick descriptions of what Paul means by obedience. And if you draw all this together, it's not that hard to picture. Be concrete here, and in your mind for a second, think about the person or the people to whom you report at your workplace. Who's Who's in charge over you? Who are the people who set the rules and the guidelines? Picture that person, be concrete about it, and think, how do I respond to them? How do I deal with them? You are to approach that person in respect of his or her authority. Sincere in your effort to submit to her. Eager to do what is expected at all times, not just when his eye is on you or when it favors you or might serve your own goals. At all times, in all ways, you are to wholeheartedly and with vigor approach your assigned task with the intention of doing it to the best of your ability. As God gives you strength to your superior's best wishes and towards their best outcomes, you think, what would honor my employer here? What would show in me? What would show to them the integrity that is within me? What would please him? What would further the company? You think through those different things and then you do them. Carry them out or you carry yourself with that kind of attitude. That's how you are to approach this relationship with your superior in the workplace. Not that hard to understand. Do you do it? It's not that complicated. Nor is it that original. It's not very unique either. This would not have been a surprise that Paul taught this. What would have been unusual is that he directly addressed slaves and assumed that they were full members of the body, that they were sitting right there listening with everybody else. That would have been unusual, but what he said to them was not. And frankly, what I've just said is not that unusual either. It's kind of what you would expect would be the right way to conduct yourself at work. Any moral or ethical teacher when addressing workplace relationships and responsibilities would, I assume, say something very similar to this. So yes, you need to hear that. You should consider your behavior and your attitudes there in that relationship. Repent where needed. But what you are supposed to do is not the unique contribution from this passage. For that, we need to look at the why. Why are we to obey our earthly masters? Verse 5. But the command is there in verse 5. The hint comes in the word earthly. As soon as Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly masters, the slaves and everybody else sitting there would and should think, oh yeah, earthly masters. We do have a non-earthly master, don't we? We do. We all have, it's the same word, master and lord, it's actually earthly lords. We do have a non-earthly lord reigns over all of this down here, all of this earthly stuff with our superiors and subordinates. He is an, a, a heavenly Lord, and He has slaves as well, all of us. And He expects things of us, and He richly rewards us. You're reading this, and you're probably thinking, if, if you're hearing it for the first time, this, Paul, you know, this is going to get back to Him somehow, isn't it? 
this is. There's the hint pointing towards the spiritual realm in verse 5, but that hint is made explicit in verse 6. Writing with the command to obey our earthly superiors, not just with eye service when they're watching, not as people pleasers kissing up to them, woven in with that statement about what stuck right in there is the why. The hint made clear. Why obey earthly lords like this? Well, to put it simply, in order to obey your heavenly Lord. This is the unique thing in Paul's teaching. He connects our obedience down here to obedience to Christ. He roots this call and command for us to obey our earthly superiors. He roots it in Christology, teaching about Christ. You see that there in verse 6. Not as people pleasers, but as servants. Same word, slave. But as slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. You don't conduct yourself as a people pleaser, he says. Don't conduct yourself in that I service. Instead, you are to conduct yourself as a slave of Christ. Don't carry on with just surface service. But instead, recognize, I am a slave of Christ. I am to eagerly do the will of God. That's how I'm supposed to act. And what that means now, Paul's telling me, is I'm supposed to submit to and obey my earthly superiors as well. Eager to obey them. Eager to submit where appropriate, out of reverence for Christ. Verse 21. The header to this section. Get what he's saying here. The first reason why you and I obey our earthly superiors. The first reason we do that is ultimately because we are slaves of this Christ who told us to do so. We may not feel like obeying them, but obedience to Christ expects it. It is part of the will of God for us. He's placed us in this position, and He's told us how to respond to authority. And so then we are to do it wholeheartedly. Not in sin. How our system allows, you know, we can switch jobs if we want, but if we're in that relationship, He's told us how we are to conduct ourselves there. That's the first part of the why answer, because He's commanded it. And this is so contrary to human nature. You know this, don't you? We, we humans, we hate being subjected to someone else. We hate being placed under, being lorded over. It just grates against us. We strongly dislike that. Our fallen natures don't work that way. But the Lord here is directing us to embrace the submissive position in this authority structure. That's what He's telling us to do. What would it be like if we did that? It is so contrary to how we normally act. What would it be like if we did that? Can you imagine how much of Christ's glory would be released in our workplace? If you could say something like this to your superior. You're my superior. You're another fallen human being just like me. You're not my superior in worth or value, not at all. But you are my superior in this structure. The providence of God has worked it such that I'm here and you're here. Therefore, I'm going to obey you wholeheartedly. I'm at your side. I am supportive of you. I'm not going to gossip about you. I'm going to give you my best effort. Goodwill. That would be unusual. If you do something to me that I don't like or that makes it hard, I am not going to walk down the hall to the water cooler or to the coffee pot and gossip about it and stab you in the back. When you directly sin against me, 
I'm going to forgive you and still offer you my best service. I'm not going to sandbag here at work. I'm not going to be mostly subordinate to you, but really not. I'm not going to do any of that. Watch me. Look at me, would you, Superior? Look at me and learn how this Christ that I am committed to serving and obeying, how He changes my fallen human nature that hates to be submitted to you, but watch how He changes me so that I cheerfully, willingly will obey you. He does something marvelous in me. Watch and learn. Now, you probably wouldn't quite say it like that. That sounds a little egotistical. Watch me and learn. But that is what happens. People and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms watch us and they learn something or another. They watch the church and they watch the people of the church and they learn about the Christ of the church and what he does. Does he have power to change people? Does he have power to make people obey when it's very convenient for them to obey and it works in their best interest? Well, big deal. Everybody does that. Does he have power to make people obey when it's hard for them? When it's inconvenient for them? That would be something. He has power to make people love their enemies? That would be something. We can teach them that. If we'll walk with him, committed to doing the will of God, submitted to this heavenly Lord who tells us to submit to our earthly lords Christ is about gaining for himself glory and I'm sure that one of the reasons he's put us in those kind of situations is to show himself off like this there are other reasons too I'm sure it is the wonderful perfect situation for your sanctification isn't it there are other reasons the one I want to lift up and hold before you is that he's committed to gaining for himself glory he's committed to that and He's going to gain that glory by changing you to act in an entirely unnatural way. Submit to Him wholeheartedly. Cooperate with Him as a slave of Christ. Obey your earthly masters. Now, as I've been talking about that, kind of crossing over into the, from the why a little bit into the, into the how question. But doing that... I, I want to make clear this answer. How do you do that? That's hard. Let me remind you of the context. This, this section right here is connected back to 521, which is connected to 518. You can't just summon up in yourself this behavior because it's not in yourself. It's not in you unless the Spirit of God has free reign in you and is reigning in you changing you. So how this happens is that we say to the Spirit of God, I see the commandment here, it's not natural for me, Lord. Here's the keys to my heart. And I'm going to give you free reign in there. Change me, please. Change me moment by moment. Take this passage, Spirit, and drive it into me so that I'm committed to seeing the glory of the Lord revealed in my life in the workplace. So that I'm changed to be more like you. Would all those things that would be the opposite of me submitting to my superior, all those things would be sin, they'd be disobedience, they'd be gossip, it'd be arguing and fighting, and I don't want any part of that. Get me away from that, please. So the first answer to the how question is to look back at the context, but the second way to, look, to answer this question is to look at verse 8. 
verse 8 puts a point on that. What is, what is the Spirit going to be reminding you of? What's, what are the tools that He's going to use when you give Him free reign there? He's going to use things like verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. There is reward here for you. It is to your benefit to walk like this. Now sure, there might be benefit actually in the workplace. I would imagine that any employer that you say something like that to, I'm with you, I'm not going to gossip, I'm going to give you my best effort. I think most employers would like that. And it might pay off for you in a very tangible way there in the office. That's not what verse 8 is talking about. Verse 8 is pointing us towards spiritual payoff. Obedience to the earthly superior is obedience to the heavenly superior. And that kind of obedience is ultimately spiritually rewarded. Think about what happens when you say in the workplace, Lord, I want to walk with you and I want to obey you. And I'm not going to be swayed to sin by these circumstances. Think about this way. Suppose, for, for instance, that you devise a plan to save your company $10 million. Works out really well. A lot of money saved. And your boss takes that plan and goes and shops it to his boss as his own idea. No compensation, no acclaim, no reward whatsoever comes to you. What do you do? Well, your, your workplace may allow you to file a grievance or something, or, or perhaps you would go in and talk to the boss. Say, hey, you know, that wasn't really very fair. But suppose that, that he or she is, is entirely unreceptive to that, and there isn't any way to file a complaint. What do you do? Well, when you say to the Lord, I am not going to sin here. I'm not going to rebel against this person. Instead, I'm going to, as Psalm 84 says, I'm going to reckon that you are the one, Lord, who bestows favor and honor, and no good thing do you withhold from him whose walk is blameless. In other words, you're going to entrust yourself to him who judges justly, who sees all things, reckons everything perfectly, and takes care of you. Lord, I'm going to cast myself on you. I got ripped off here. I'm going to cast myself on you and entrust myself to you. And what he does then is he says, Great. Come to me. Come to me. Let me give you myself. Sanctification happens in you. You are more closely fastened to Him. Sin is set further away from you. Intimacy with Christ grows. That is to your greatest benefit. God, your exceeding joy becomes yours in a new way. In the midst of yuck at work. That is a great reward to you here and now even if you never get promoted. But it's also infinite reward there and then. He'll welcome you one day and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you'll say, where? And he'll say, right there, when your boss ripped you off and you continue to submit to him and support him. Enter into your reward now. It is to your great benefit. And you need to remember that. The word there in verse 8. Remember, that the grammar of the word actually tells us that it's remember and be in the attitude of remembering. Know and be in the attitude of knowing. He's going to remind you of that and to keep reminding you of that. So know it, remember it. 
great benefit to you when you walk like this. Subordinates, you are to walk obediently with sincere attitude towards your superiors. Now he turns the tables in the second half, actually the last verse. He says, to the earthly lords, a little brief here, he says, to the earthly lords, as you deal with your subordinates, here's how you do that. You respect them. Superiors, respect your subordinates. I'm going to put it in a phrase, there it is. The word free at the end of verse 8 makes clear that he's crossing over into the, into the masters. If the Lord is going to reward for whatever is done in the body, whether good or bad, he's going to reward the slave and the free. And now let me talk to you ones who are free, you masters. Here's his word to you. Treat them with respect. Do the same to them, literally it says. You've got to work on that a little bit and figure out what that means. It's not, it's not saying they're supposed to no longer be masters. The next phrase, which is not an independent sentence, it's actually a modifying phrase, means that we should read this like this. Do the same to them, dispensing with, or getting rid of, threatening harsh language. So, do the same to them, no longer threatening them. Now, they're obviously still going to be superiors, because otherwise they wouldn't have any opportunity to threaten in the first place. He's saying, with the same attitude, in the same manner, you are to conduct yourselves in this relationship with them. They have an attitude of goodwill and sincerity towards you and support. Same back to them. And drop the threatening language. Masters could threaten slaves in a whole host of ways. Far beyond just firing them. He's saying, drop all of that from your repertoire and how you manage shouldn't be any of that. Treat them instead with respect. This confronts superiors, I think, right where they and their fallen human nature live. Right where they and their fallen human nature of superiority live. Being in charge is dangerous. Think about this. It might seem kind of fun, but being in charge is dangerous because since your birth, Something inside of you has always thought that you should be in charge. Something inside of you has been consistently, deeply convinced that you know best. And you're just waiting for the power to carry that out. Long convinced that you are most important. That everyone and everything else should exist so as to establish and support and reinforce you in your agenda. That's how everything is approached by the fallen human nature. Now some of us are more arrogant and some of us are more laid back about that, but we're all thinking it. And being in charge is dangerous because you finally are placed in a position where you can carry that out. It's like pouring gasoline on a fire. Take care. Be careful with this. Think through your work environment. Think through those of you who are superiors, who are, are managers or bosses or owners of something. Think through your work environment. Picture the people who report to you and who are under you in some way. How do you treat them? 
How do you conduct yourself towards them? You treat them disrespectfully? You give yourself extra privileges? Does everything that doesn't work out end up being blamed on them and come with a rant from you? Do you threaten them with termination or with demotion or do you dangle promotions in front of them to kind of get them to, to work? How do you treat them? Think that through and beware here. You have a superior yourself. You have a heavenly Lord who sees all who sees all that you do and sees the heart behind what you do. He will bring all things to account and He cares not what status you had. He is impartial. He'll put it all right there in front of Him and He'll judge it. Does He approve of what you're doing? Know this. Same words in verse 8. Same grammatical structure. Know this and be in the state of knowing it. Remember it. Remember it at the times that it comes to do employee evaluations. Remember it at the times when it comes to dish out end of your bonuses. Remember it at the times when you, you shake down how this thing failed. And you apportion blame. Remember it at those times. He's a judge. And he's impartial. And you are in a particular position of danger. The Spirit has to work something in you as well. What He has to work in you is the... It's the fight against the, the superior nature. It's the same thing kind of reversed for the subordinate. Subordinates, all of us, we hate being subordinated. And superiors, we love being superior. It's the same side. It's pride of different sides of it. In fact, if you think about this, it's pride, different sides of it in all three of these relationships. It's the same issue. Whether you're a superior or subordinate, you're frustrated or tempted to sin because you're, you're beneath or because you're above. If you're a parent or a child, you're tempted to abuse your power or to grate against it. If you're a husband or a wife, it's the same thing. It's fundamental to the human nature that we are proud people. And each, of, each side of those three relationships is attacking the same thing from a different angle. We need the Spirit to work that in us. The Spirit to produce that kind of humility in us that we've talked about before in chapter 4. I hope you still have that sheet that has the two sides and those two columns on it. The proud person and the broken person. You see how the proud person isn't going to be able to walk either side of this line? But the broken person can walk both. towards that end, because I know that that is the, the basic problem being dealt with here, towards that end I want to close this sermon and these last three sermons, last two sermons, with reading part of a poem, really it's a prayer, it kind of reads like a poem, a prayer that addresses this issue of pride. It's from a book called The Valley of Vision. I highly recommend this book. The Poetic Prayers written by the Puritans long ago. These guys know how to pray. These are great for meditation. I'm going to read slowly the first part of one of these prayers. And what it's attacking is pride. It's attacking that thing in us, whether we be superiors or subordinates, parents, kids, husbands, wives. It's attacking that thing in us that makes it hard to live wherever we are. 
whatever role we're in. So listen to this. I'm going to read it slowly. It's got some old English in it. They're not too bad. Think this. Make it your own prayer. O fountain of all good, destroy in me every lofty thought. Break pride to pieces and scatter it to the winds. Annihilate each clinging shred of self-righteousness. Implant in me true lowliness of spirit. Abase me to self-loathing and self-abhorrence. Open in me a fount of penitential tears, a fountain of tears of repentance. Break me and then bind me up. Thus will my heart be a prepared dwelling for my God. Then can the Father take up His abode in me. Then can the blessed Jesus come with healing in His touch. Then can the Holy Spirit descend in sanctifying grace. O Holy Trinity, three persons and one God, inhabit me, a temple consecrated to Thy glory. Man, praying, praying, praying that God would break him of internal pride. Puts it in half a dozen different ways there. That he would break him inside. Bring him down to nothing. And then bind him together because then God will dwell in him. That's what's needed if we are to walk in a worthy manner as superiors or subordinates or parents or children or husbands or wives. That in fact is what is needed if we are to walk in a worthy manner at all. Pray like that. Ask the Lord, break me. Drive this out of me and then bind me back together that you would come live in me. We need that. You need that. May God give grace to do that in you and in me. In the prayer. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.